This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, what are the problems facing the new prime minister? Is the future of feminism conservative? And the horror of writing Liz Truss's biography. First up, James Forsyth writes about what to expect from Rishi Sunak's first few months in office. He joins me now along with academic and pollster Matt Goodwin. James, do you mind just summarising briefly for our listeners what his immediate challenges are as you see them? So, I think the challenges he faces are formidable. So you've got obviously an economic challenge and the need to kind of for a kind of consolidation in the public finances. I think you can see, though, by the fact that they push back this Halloween fiscal event into November without any market reaction that already the combination of Sunak and Hunt, and I should say that I've known, I've known Rishi for years, that that combination has already calmed the market. So some of the pressure there has eased. But you still have this formidable question of, of how to put the public finances on a sustainable footing and how to get growth going. The second challenge, I think, is political. Rishi Sunak has an approval rating kind of in the negative single digits, but the Tory party has an a, has a approval rating which is negative to, I think you're saying in the piece, I think negative to 43 points or 47, 43 points, I think it is. That is obviously a problem. It means you're not going to get a honeymoon period. And then I think the other related question to that is, does the Tory party want to win again? I think that, you know, will, is the Tory party going to look at these opinion poll ratings and say, right, Let's pull together, because otherwise this is existential. Or are they going to look at it and say, we're going to lose anyway, so let's just carry on scrapping. I think the initial signs are relatively positive. This is a cabinet that has been constructed that is, unlike the trust cabinet, isn't just of one faction or people who supported one candidate for the leadership. And, and I've always an interesting tell about the par- mood of the parliamentary party. But PMQs this week is, I think, the happiest I've seen Tory MPs in, in, in a long time, possibly even a year. Then after that, there's obviously the NHS crisis. I, I have long thought that this is the biggest potential threat to the Tories, which is if you look at the NHS stats for the moment, they look like the stats that you would expect to see in January or February in a bad winter. So that is the obvious risk there. But And the problem for the government is but the fundamental issue here is a lack of doctors and beds now there are some things that you can do to try and alleviate that problem you know you can ease the pension rules so fewer doctors quit you can use technology to monitor more patients at home but you can't solve that problem overnight and then there's obviously the problem that we are in the middle of a of a brutal war in europe and i think it is very worrying that you've got the Russians talking about how the Ukrainians might stage a dirty bomb attack and try and make it look like a Russian nuclear attack. Because we have seen throughout this conflict that the Russians have a tendency to ascribe to others things that they are to try and ascribe to others things that they are planning to do themselves. Those are the challenges which are clearly formidable even before you get to the point that he takes over with the Tories 30 odd points behind in the polls and even Tory MPs saying in public interviews that they expect to lose the next election. I think he is, he is beginning to change the mood but the the challenge he faces is formidable. So, Matt, James mentioned there the very bad poll uh, ratings that the Tories have right now. Their approval ratings very low. Labour far ahead in, in almost, well, not almost, every single poll that is taken, Labour are very far ahead. Do you think 
that the situation for the Tory party is salvageable in time for 2024, or is it just a foregone conclusion that the next government will be led by Sir Keir Starmer? No, I think it's completely salvageable. One of the things we have to remember about British politics today, unlike the 1990s, and many people have been comparing the polls today to the 1990s, is that we simply have much higher rates of volatility in our system than we did in the era of New Labour and John Major. I mean, the simple reality is over the last 10 years, about 60% of the country have changed their votes from one party to another. And the, the scale and the speed of the Conservative collapse, in a sense, also tells us that, you know, the recovery could also be quite dramatic. I mean, people tend to forget it was only a year ago the Conservatives were, were averaging close to 40% in the polls. What essentially has happened is two two things have damaged the party brand. One was Partygate, that shaved off about six to seven points. And then the second was Trustonomics and the disaster of trust, which sort of shaved off about 10 to 12 and that's where Rishi comes in in trying to salvage the party from those those two crises. And I, I have to say, actually, I'm pretty optimistic as to how this is going to go for a couple of reasons. And James alluded to some of them. I think one is if you compare and contrast Rishi Sunak's speech outside of number 10 to Liz Truss's, you've got somebody who completely gets where the Conservative electorate is. He talked about going back to the 2019 manifesto, talked about levelling up. Liz Truss never mentioned that talked about the importance of migration, the cultural axis in politics. And, you know, one of the concerns about Rishi Sunak that was voiced quite widely before he became PM was that, you know, is this just another economic manager? Is this actually just another technocrat? Is this somebody who doesn't really get the fact that the Conservative electorate has changed? And I think clearly he does. I think that's also reflected in his cabinet appointments. I think it's good that Gove is doing levelling up. I think my personal view, it's good that someone like Suella is doing doing migration and that stuff. And I think you've obviously got posts for people like Kemi Badnock and so on. So I think, you know, the team that you might have wanted to have to try and put back together that 2019 electorate like Humpty Dumpty, I think is there. Whether now Sunak can go through the crises and give those voters the messages they want to hear, I think that's the challenge that he faces. But but this is almost entirely salvageable. My last point briefly is look at global politics right now. Almost all of the parties that are doing well in elections, Sweden, France, Italy, midterms in the US, watch next month, are conservative parties, right? But more than that, they're actually national conservative parties that are speaking to concern over inflation and jobs, but also speaking to concerns over borders and culture. Uh, I think Sunak actually may find the climate more favourable if he sort of sticks to this embryonic strategy than we currently all think. But uh, sorry, Matt, but as well as being Conservative parties, all the examples you just listed are all anti-incumbent parties. Is that not another way of looking at it? I think that's certainly a fair point. But I mean, you know, if you look at the repositioning of parties in Sweden, I think over time we've seen a new generation of conservatives making new arguments about some of these issues. There's no doubt that 12 years in government is working against the Conservative Party. There's no doubt the incumbency effect is very real. But it's also true, we should remember, that the Labour brand and the Labour numbers, while strong as a party, still are quite vulnerable in a number of key areas. You know, Starmer's ratings are not bouncing off the walls. Labour's lead on the economy is not as robust as some would have us believe. So I'm simply making the point that we may be surprised 
at the speed and scale of the conservative recovery because one final point keep in mind here only about 15 to 20 percent of the 2019 conservatives have gone labor the vast majority are saying they don't know who they're going to vote for at the next election so we are actually in a way some we're sort of back to where we were in the summer of 2019 just before boris johnson took over and you had the vast majority of conservatives sitting out saying they're apathetic rather than switching over to Labour. To me, that's low-hanging fruit for Team Sunak. To me, there's 25% of the Conservative vote that's just waiting to hear him say the things they want him to say. Watch this space, I guess. If I could just footnote Matt there. It's worth remembering that British politics has always been a momentum game. So if the Tories start going up in the polls, that, that Labour lead, which is, which is you know, as Keir Starmer keeps desperately trying to tell everyone, is unrealistically high at the moment. It isn't going to stay there forever. But if that Labour lead drops back to what would normally be very, very healthy numbers, you know, 12 points or something like that, people, people on the left will start causing some trouble for Keir Starmer, I think. The, the scent of office has enabled Keir Starmer to very successfully shut down those people on the left of the Labour Party who want a more radical offer than the one he is making. But I think if that Labour League gets slimmed down, that, that is more difficult. I also think there is a structural point here, right, which is we are moving into an era where borrowing is to pay for policies for day-to-day spending or day-to-day you know, or permanent tax cuts is going to be much more difficult as a sell. And that is going to restrict Labour's room for manoeuvre. I think that Sunak is a more naturally comfortable fiscal conservative. And you know, traditionally, the Tory party have done better when they can say to Labour, well, hang on a second, you want to do this, how are you paying for it? Is it borrowing or is it tax rises? And just to take away from the, the, the polls and to go back to the if I may, James, to the Parliamentary Party. You mentioned that for now you get a sense there's a, there's a general unity behind Rishi Sunak and certainly, you know, lots of MPs that backed Liz Truss in the summer leadership race immediately fell behind Rishi this time around in the, the, the sort of second <laughs> leadership race this year. But how long can that Tory truce hold? I mean, where you, are we going to start seeing divisions even within Cabinet? And you can... I mean, this is a hypothetical, but you can easily imagine, let's say, a disagreement over immigration between, you know, Grant Shapps in business and Suella Braverman in, in the Home Office. You know, the, the, these are the sorts of issues you could very easily imagine start to cause disunity within the party, you know? Look, I think all political parties in, in the British system, you create an internal coalition, so you don't need to create an external coalition. And I think the question is whether the Tory party still has the discipline to hold together an internal coalition so that it so that it, it it can keep going. I mean that 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 is a that is a big question. I think some of the pressure. I think mean, part of the problem was that because the mini budget blew up so spectacularly, Liz Truss was in a situation where she was trying to rush through a new immigration policy to get the most generous finding from the OBR possible. That I think is the worst possible context. A rushed and with pressure to have a debate on immigration. I mean there is crucial thing on immigration before you can move on to discussing other bits of it is to demonstrate control i think that you know if you can demonstrate control then i think that you can say to voters actually we're going to be more generous in terms of allowing people here to come and work in care homes or the nhs or the like but you've got to demonstrate control first Matt, you mentioned earlier in this podcast that you you personally approved of the appointment of Suella Braverman to Home Secretary, but it, it was notable in PMQs, I thought, how how often Labour tried to make her reappointment to the position of Home Secretary an issue. Do do you think that's a tactically wise thing for Labour to be arguing? 
I think that's a short-term attack line for Labour. I think the reality is that 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 will run out of steam fairly quickly. I do think, by the way, the other thing we saw in PMQs was that I, there is an area where Sunak is vulnerable, and that's levelling up. I think the focus within the Labour Party on the video of Rishi Sunak talking about, at least seeming to talk about, wanting to relocate resources out of deprived areas in the north to the south I think that will become a big theme of the Labour campaign over the next two years. And that's where, with Michael Gove, he'll need to do some work. It's also interesting, I'm going to come back to Suella, but on the policy point, and just to riff on James for a minute, I actually think there's a huge opportunity for Sunak with the NHS. If he actually comes out and says, look, we can't keep giving the NHS 200 billion quid a year. We can't, it's not working. It's not functioning. Everybody knows that. I actually think there's an opportunity for him to try and own that issue He's talked about the need to link up the National Health Service with social care. He's talked about the need to bring forward an NHS reform agenda, you know, similar maybe to the new new Labour years. I actually think if he gets ahead of that and says, look, everyone in this, you know, we all love the NHS, but let's be brutally honest with each other. It's not working. We need a reform agenda. That's one way where maybe he can start to bring some pressure onto Labour in a traditional Labour issue. And what I thought was also revealing at PMQs, which brings me back to Suella, is the fact that he is willing to talk tough on the migration issue, right? I've just spent all of this week polling voters on small boats. We have an electorate that is increasingly alarmed at the seeming inability of our political leaders to deal with that issue, right? They want tough action on that. They're more than happy to revisit the ECHR. You know, they really want to challenge a consensus if it means they get control of Britain's borders. I think Sunak will probably end up leaning into that through Suella, maybe through other members of the cabinet. I think we still haven't resolved the immigration riddle in this country. What is the sustainable level of migration? How are we going to get there? We are going to have net migration levels probably at 300, 350, 400,000 very soon because of the legacy of Johnson's uh, liberalisation of non-European migration. That's going to create a problem for Sunak because then everyone's going to say, well, you guys thought, you know, you said you're going to bring down migration. Now we're at record levels beyond what we saw in the new Labour years. So if he, if he can get ahead of that and if Suella can come out and say, look, you know, she takes it seriously. She's going to go to, you know, take on the French, take on the European courts, do what needs to be done. That is one way where they can carry on speaking very loudly and forcefully to that big chunk of the Conservative electorate. And remember, the Conservative electorate overall has become much more anxious about immigration and its effects over the last 10 years. Don't read too much into this idea about the liberalisation of British voters on this issue. That is exaggerated by many people who want to believe that that is happening. It is true in London, university towns, Zoomers, graduates, but for the Conservative Party... They've got to maintain a position, a consistent position on that migration point if they're going to hold that coalition together. Thank you, James and Matt. Next, Louise Perry, author of the book The Case Against Sexual Revolution, writes why the future of feminism is conservative. She joins me now, along with Victoria Smith, author of Hags, The Demonization of the Middle-Aged Woman. Louise, who and what is driving this rightward shift? So I think it's two things, and I think they're the internet, the, the invention of the internet is at the, the heart of both of them. So the first is what I describe in the piece, slightly tongue-in-cheek, is the Great British Turf War. 
roughly circa 2010 to roughly circa now, I think that it is now over. I think that the the gender critical side has won. Witness, for instance, the fall of mermaids, which was once deeply within the heart of the establishment, charity representing trans children or porting to, and now in disgrace. I think that the um, the tide has completely turned in, in institutional terms. Gender critical voices that were once completely excluded from the mainstream are now being heard loud and clear. So I think that that decade or so of of largely grassroots campaigning by women, most of them, although by no means all, mothers anxious about their children and galvanising around platforms like Mumsnet, described not flatteringly by one American outlet as the ground zero of British transphobia, Mumsnet turned out to be a completely invaluable source of um, community building from British gender critical feminists. I think the reason that we've ended up with this influx of mothers into public discussion is because of the internet, because it is otherwise very, very practically difficult if you're at home with little children or if you're run off your feet juggling work and childcare to participate in. You can't show up at town hall meetings. You can't spend your days on street corners shouting about shouting about political issues. But with the internet and a smartphone in one hand and a baby in the other, you can actually participate in this kind of discourse. And I think that I think it was that influx of ordinary mums into the Great British Turf War that has really changed the character of British feminism. And I think that that rightward shift in feminist organising is to be expected because those women are not necessarily coming at all from the traditional leftist activist position that most feminists historically have done in the 20th century or in the second half of the 20th century, I should say they are much more likely to be coming from outside of the left. And actually, given that we know that having children tends to make people more conservative, having any kind of influx of mums into, into feminism is likely to result in a slightly conservative shift. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that this is unique in the history of feminism. I think that feminism always goes through periods of being more or less conservative. It's just that until recently, the left were dominant, but I think no longer. And Victoria, what what do you make of Louise's argument? Do you think the next wave of feminism could be conservative or even that, as Louise just said there, that the gender critical tide has already turned? I'm not sure I would say that gender critical feminism has sort of won the battle yet. I think there's certain perspectives I get from the feminists I talk to and the women that I talk to who may not call themselves feminists but are very much involved in these arguments But then I think quite a lot of people that I would encounter sort of offline still believe this is very much equivalent to gay rights, that they don't quite have the same engagement or in fact the same level of education on it that a lot of women on Mumsnet have for all that they're sort of vilified as like badly informed Karens who don't know what they're talking about. You know, these are these tend to be very educated, very knowledgeable women. Don't know if I would characterise it exactly as a shift rightwards or a conservative shift. I very much agree with Louise that online spaces have increased the visibility of these women and their arguments a lot. I think throughout history, there's always been this kind of fear of mothers gathering and mothers communing and sharing ideas and men find it quite threatening. And one impact of, I I would say, sort of liberal feminism and second wave feminism's attitude toward maternity, which hasn't always been positive, has been to like increase the fragmentation of mothers and keep them isolated from one another. And that has completely changed with forums like Mumsnet. And I think it has been incredibly positive in terms of women sharing their ideas and making 
really coherent arguments against this denial of the salience of biological sex to people's lives and to women's lives and to children's. And Louise, what do you make of Victoria's point just there that there have been times perhaps where second wave feminists have perhaps not exactly vilified motherhood, but but have not been as open to it as one might expect? Oh, completely. I would say vilified. <laughs> I'd be quite strong about it. I think that the liberal individualism is really, really incompatible with motherhood because the nature of motherhood is that you don't really operate like an individual, particularly in the early days of children's lives when mothers and infants are, are physically and emotionally really closely bound together. So it's always been a bit of a sticking point in any feminist political movement that is prioritizing freedom as the ultimate goal for, for womankind, because actually um, motherhood drastically limits your freedom. <laughs> so I think that that's always been a significant tension. Although I think it is also, I mean, I, I perhaps controversially using the piece when I'm when I'm when I talk about feminism, I'm using quite a loose definition. I'm not necessarily talking about the so normally we would say, you know, first wave is suffrage, second wave is the, the radicalism of the 60s and 70s, third wave is, you know, who, who even knows, it gets a bit blurry after that. But I think actually you can look at a lot of different political movements throughout history and see them as feminists in some ways. Temperance was a feminist movement. It is often forgotten that the, 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 the key motivating force of temperance, which was largely driven by women, was um, an anti-domestic violence campaign because they associated alcohol abuse with domestic violence. The women who are now condemned as Christian moralizers of the 19th century, someone like Josephine Butler, who campaigned against the sex industry and campaigned, for instance, to stop the British army from procuring Indian adolescent girls for use for, for the sexual use by their troops you know this was I, I I see that as an unambiguously feminist political project and but she, you know Josephine Butler was a, was a Christian was was conservative in all sorts of ways that we would 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 not gel at all with the radicalism of the second wave so I think if we understand if we understand this history in a in a in a slightly broader sense then actually this return to maternity even if it was marginalised over the last half century or so, is, I think, completely in keeping with feminist history. And, Victoria, I'd like to ask your opinion about to what extent you think age plays a big factor in, in perhaps some of the disagreements we see in, in arguments about feminism nowadays. You mentioned the term Karen earlier and the people who are branded as Karens on social media. Uh, I mean, do, do, do you think that as well as, as, as Louise says, people tend to become more conserved when they're conservative when they're older, particularly conservative when they have children. I think that's certainly true. But do you also, do you also see, I suppose, a degree of ageism, perhaps, in, in some of the, the arguments about, about feminism? I, I think there's loads of ageism in the arguments about feminism. And I think one of the ways in which women have been controlled by men, if you want to put it like that, has been through um, dividing women from one another and encouraging mistrust between generations of women and really vilifying older women. And in a lot of male-centric progressive thought, there's this obsession with freedom and liberty and disengagement from dependency on others and responsibility towards others. And as Louise is saying, like motherhood sort of really pushes back against this. And I think there's quite a lot of resentment of that. And I think as well, the ageing process also pushes back on this idea that we're these perfectible creatures who can deny dependency and who can deny the body. I mean, you know, we can't. And 
one thing I almost think that there is a kind of idea of liberal feminism that it almost considers itself too good for female people with their sort of reproductive aging bodies that like get saggy and get tired out and get they don't want to talk about illness they don't want to talk about children they don't want to talk about need they want to talk about freedom all the time and I think that's one of the reasons that trans activism has engaged a lot of people so much because it pushes this idea that you can be whatever you want to be and you can invent your body and recreate your body and the idea that actually a woman isn't this gorgeous sex doll a woman is someone who will end up a middle-aged woman an old woman you know nobody fantasizes about being a middle-aged woman if someone says they identify as a woman they rarely identify as a middle-aged woman called Sharon who's working in a supermarket and is got to look after elderly relatives and has got a load of kids to look after you know the, these aren't things that people consider aspirational aging female bodies aren't considered aspirational i think for a lot of young women coming to feminism or what they think of as feminism and it's certainly this was the case for me was thinking this is a thing that will enable me not to turn out like my mother's generation i'll have more freedom i won't become one of those women and there needs to be this realization that we all age we all kind of end up one of these women what you need to do is think about what conditions you want to live as as one of these women and uh, just finally louise you make reference in your piece to the nonpartisan organization the other half i just wonder do you think a reconciliation between so-called right-wing feminism and left-wing feminism is even possible or or is it is it just are they too divided to to come under one united movement well feminism has always been deeply divided as as, as all political movements are the purpose of the other half, what we're trying to do with it, is bridging the gap between public opinion and received wisdom in Westminster, because there are a host of issues on which the majority of British women are actually pretty much of one mind. Um, trans activism is not popular in the country at large. Most parents want more choice when it comes to something like childcare and want to be able to spend more time with their children rather than being funneled back into the workplace as quickly as possible, which is what I think our policy currently currently does. Most parents, mothers and fathers both, are deeply distressed by the exposure of their children to online pornography. There are all sorts of issues on, on which actually we, we, there's very broad agreement among women of, of really most political, back, political persuasions. But it's quite hard to hear those arguments in Westminster because Westminster tends to express a very self-selecting group just by but just sort of by definition because you know for instance we talk a lot about female representation in various positions of power which is important but we don't talk very much about representation of mothers in, in positions of power mothers tend to be really underrepresented underrepresented in all senior positions that you can imagine really mostly for obvious biological reasons that you just you have to opt out of the workforce for a period when you have children and many women don't want to return or don't want to return full-time because they want to spend more time with their children and that's fine the result down the track though is you end up with those voices not being heard as loudly in the rooms in which important decisions are being made and we're trying to remedy that and we are helped along by the fact that as 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 we've been talking about today it's increasingly possible for women who previously weren't participating in political discourse to do so through the internet and uh, I really, I really welcome the the changes that I think we're seeing right now in British feminism. And I hope as well that they are imitated overseas, because I think British feminists are um, 
streets ahead of Americans, for instance, <laughs> on all of these issues. Thank you, Louise and Victoria. And finally, The Spectator's diary editor, James Heal, and Harry Cole, political editor of The Sun, are the authors of the new book, Out of the Blue, The Unexpected Rise and Rapid Fall of Liz Truss. They both join me now to talk about the agony of rewrites. So, James and Harry, you've had quite the month. Oh, yeah, it's been a bit of a, a stressful time. I think uh, Liz Truss has given a lot of people in the country a fair few restless nights, and we're certainly no exception. And I don't know what Harry would say, but uh, I think that as the disintegration of Liz's government got ever quicker, I think the, the workload did pick up and we had a fair few re- rewrites to do. Yes, well, Harry, so at what point in the trust premiership did you realise this really isn't going to plan as a, as a government? Might the book actually be in jeopardy as a result? Yeah, well, we always thought it would be a risk to write a book about a living politician as it sort of evolved, there was a couple of hairy moments. One, we suddenly thought after we were about 30,000 words in, hold on, what if she doesn't win? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been a waste of time. Little did we know that she would win. And then I think it was around party conference, really, where the book was meant to end, where actually you could tell that you were beginning to, that the story was, was possibly coming to a sort of crescendo naturally, that actually I think the worst case scenario would have been if we'd sort of crashed it out it had gone because there's sort of a longer lead time on it. I think it would be a shame if we finished the book and got it out and then she'd resign about four days yeah. later. So in a weird way, the fact that the speed of it actually helped us in a little way because it it gave us time to to to, to tell the whole story. And and uh, Harry, so you you have been able to close the final chapter, so to speak. You know, you you have Absolutely. actually it, managed to make it, it, it ends, to the yeah. It ends. You know, the book ends. She's already you know resigned. And it ends on the eve of her throwing in the towel and going to see the king on, um, gosh, when was it? Monday morning. So, no, we go right up to it. We also have a little look towards the end about a change of leadership is one thing, but all of the problems that, you know, the underlying problems with the country and the underlying problems with the Conservative Party don't go away with a simple personnel change at the top. So there's a, a bit of a, there's a bit of, you know, one person that should have a read of this book is probably Rishi. <laughs> and, uh, and, and James, could you talk our listeners through the past two weeks and the kind of furious rewriting you've had to do because of changing events? Was it simply a case of doing a control F and replacing words such as underestimated with overestimated? <laughs> well, I, 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 th- I think put it this way, I think really it all comes back to that mini budget. Thereafter, what it was was an attempt to try and regain the initiative. And there were two stages, really, one of which was the kind of death of trustonomics and the death of Liz Truss's premiership as a radical kind of premiership. She wants to come in and do all these great reforming things. And then I think that kind of ended with the 45p tax return and the sacking of Kwasi Kwarteng. But then there was a period where people thought, OK, well, she might do a Theresa May. This Tory party is trying to find a successor. She could hang on for anything up to a year, a matter of months speaking. And then that clearly all came to an end on that Wednesday night, which is actually, if you think about it, just a week ago today, less than a week ago today, there was that fracking vote. And that just really finished off a whole sort of wave of letters went in uh, to Graham Brady. And that's when the game was up, as uh, he went and told her the following day on Thursday. So something you talk about in your piece, James, is that your book has become a meme uh, in certain <laughs> in certain online circles of Twitter. There's Facebook memes about the kind of rewriting of it, about the kind of uh, comedy, I suppose, of a book called The Astonishing Rise of Liz Trust that then has to become, you know, the, the rise and, and fall of Liz Trust. Can you tell your listeners maybe a few of your favourite memes or perhaps the one that you found the most brutal? 
Well, I mean, there was one which went viral, which was if you're having a bad day at work, think of Harry Cole and James Heal, who have got a book coming out on Liz Truss's astonishing rise, which isn't due out for another six weeks. And that meme was shared, I think, more than sort of 30,000 times on Twitter. And uh, among the people who got it were my dad, who had it forward on from a boomer WhatsApp group. And my sister, who was shown it during her Warwick University Freshers Week. So um, it was all a little bit surreal, really. And suddenly international media were getting in touch saying, hi, you know, it's all it's your book. Let's talk about that. And what on earth is it to be out of date so quickly, you know, out of the blue into the bin? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wonder whether, it, you know, I wonder whether it is out of date, crucially, though. I think just on that previous point, though, I would point out that in the, all the course of those furious rewrites, there was a rewriting of the ending. But actually, one thing that struck James and I is that how little of it actually we've changed up until the, the campaign. The, the style of which Liz Truss ran her government was there in the style of which she ran all of her political career. So I think that really changed was the title. And uh, I stand by it. I still think it was astonishing. <laughs> yes, I mean, it was more it was more the sort of tenses and the sense of, you know, when we were sort of finishing it for the conference, Harry, it was, it was kind of like, might she hold on? Is there a political yeah, path through? Delete, delete. Yeah. <laughs> is there any path back? <laughs> Replaced with no. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I agree with Harry that, that, I mean, the clues were always there. And you look at what happened with her first ministerial post, education, and the, the way in which the childcare ratios got completely gutted by, among others, Michael Gove, you know, echoes 10 years on. Yeah. There's foreshadowing. Almost, Foresha- yeah. yeah. I mean, and the key players, I mean, and the, and the danger is sort of Harry like, is sort of saying is the people who who brought Liz Truss down and, and Liz Truss supporters, they're all there in the Commons still. Yeah. And, and the wider issues facing the country and the party remain, don't they, Harry? Yeah, no, I would agree. The, the fact is that it's a deeply divided party in the fag end of the 12-year government. So, I mean, there's, you know, you've got more than 60 now former ministers, senior ministers on the back benches. A few of them are being brought back by Rishi, but you can't bring back all of them who've got nothing to lose. You've got the geographical splits within the Conservative Party, which aren't going to go away. Perhaps Rishi Sunak realised that with his big play on the 2019 manifesto, bringing that back and trying to sort of relive that Boris mandate. But then you've also got the, you know, the fact is that the, the Tory party used to be quite divided down the lines of leave and remain. Now the leavers are at war with each other. We've got the, you know, the free marketeers who want to increase immigration to go for growth. You've got the anti-immigration right played out particularly with the, you know, the sort of appointment of Suella. You've got big splits on the, on the, on the left of the party as well, between the sort of public service, you know, reform, or dare I say Blairite lot, and the sort of classic, slightly Petrarchan one nation lot who just want to dish out lots of cash to the needy. So a lot of the problems of the party, they've not gone away. And I wonder how long before they start to explode into the open in a way that they did for Liz Truss very quickly by what she did. But I wonder how long Rishi Sunak really, really has before Tory party does what it does best and starts tearing each other apart again. James, you mentioned earlier that you've, and you mentioned the piece as well, that you've had various media outlets getting in touch with you to talk about the book and sort of perhaps joshing you a bit about it being out of date. You know, you, you were asked on the BBC, who's <laughs> going to buy this thing? Isn't it already out of date? But, but you know, surely a counter argument could be that it's the kind of meme status makes it not only a, a, a collectible, perhaps, but as Harry said, a sort of a sort of snapshot of this incredible sped up few weeks in in, in Downing Street. Uh, yeah, I think we we jest and I think we've sort of lent into the humour a lot. But but as you say, I mean, people are now 
They didn't know Liz Truss before, they certainly will now, and they'll have an opinion. They want to know more about Britain's shortest serving Prime, Prime Minister and how she got to this position. Remember, of course, the same Conservative Party that put, you know, just, just chosen Rishi Sunak. Okay, you know, it was went didn't go to the membership vote, but they're the same people who were putting Liz Truss forward and made her the viable candidate just three months ago. So uh, I think there's a bit of rewriting history going on. And I think, <laughs> so to speak. So to speak, yeah. <laughs> but, but, it, but it was also, I think, the elements that shaped her premiership, the forces, etc., will still be there. But also a lot of what's happening with Rishi now is a reaction to what went before with Liz Truss. And therefore, it's important to see what happened with Trustism, where did it go wrong, what lessons can be learned. And there's a human drama at all of this, which I think people will want to read about. Final question to both of you. Would you ever write the biography of a prime minister again? Harry? <laughs> Maybe one that's been dead for 100 years. <laughs> uh, well, let's just say I can't see it anytime soon. I think Liz Truss is done with the, with the premiership and uh, we're done with Liz Truss, put it that way. Well, I'm not sure, though. Hang on. I mean, we seem to have had a uh, almost my, you know, reverse Midas touch for prime ministers. So it um, depends <laughs> who you want us to take out next, really. <laughs> <laughs> I said this to a leading Labour politician the other day, we're going to do you next. And he sort of shrank and said, no, 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 there's plenty of skeletons in uh, Keir Starmer's closet to worry about first. So maybe, maybe Sir Keir next. I don't know. James and Harry, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and do join me again next week.